So welcome to Table Talk, a conversation on race. Today is February 15th, 2023. And in today's webinar, we will be discussing Voices of Change, the Journey of Minority Candidates at Jurisdiction Jurisdictional Conference 2023. And so while we're having these conversations with the Episcopal candidates, we want you to feel free to ask questions, put them in the Q&A box, and we'll try our best to answer them at the end of our webinar. As a reminder, our webinar, our goal is to bring awareness to the work of anti-racism in the Florida Conference and today beyond. Um, our hope is also to equip and support those who are integrating anti-racism into their ministry and their lives. And we believe that this is part of our discipleship. This is how we love God and love neighbor. My name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the beloved community leadership team, along with Alice Williams, who, who's here with me as well. She's a co-chair, and she'll be co-hosting with us today. Hey, Erwin. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Alice Williams, co-lay leader for the Florida Annual Conference and a delegate to uh, jurisdictional and to uh, our next general conference as well. It's great to see everybody. Excellent. So today we're going to just get right into it. We welcomed three very special leaders in our denomination. Uh, we have the Reverend Sharon Bowers, who is the Episcopal nominee for the Holston Conference in Tennessee for Black Methodist Church Renewal. We have the Reverend Ken Nelson, who was a South Carolina Conference nominee, and the Reverend Dr. Sharon Austin, who was a Florida Conference nominee. And they're going to be sharing on their experience at the Southeastern Jurisdictional Conference. And so we're going to get right to it. We're going to start with Reverend Pastor Ken Nelson. Pastor Ken, it's so nice to be with you today. Thank you so much for coming um, and sharing your story about your experience um, as Jurisdictional Conference. So the floor is yours, and, and we're, we're glad to hear from you. Honored to hear from you. Erwin, thank you so much. And thank you so much to the Florida Conference for this wonderful invitation. Uh, chance to share with you some of my thoughts concerning our jurisdictional conference, but perhaps even some thoughts about our life together and what that means. Uh, my name is Kim Nelson, and uh, I am a member of the South Carolina Annual Conference and was the privilege and honor to be the Episcopal nominee this last time around. Um, prior to coming into that work and the work that I do on a daily basis is I serve as the Orangeburg District Superintendent uh, in the Orangeburg District of the South Carolina Conference. And so I want to share with you just briefly a little bit about my sense of calling um, it related to being the Episcopal nominee, and then a little bit about my experience of the process, and, and hopefully a little bit about um, what I learned and what my hopes might be for the church's future, and then maybe some, some comments about what that would mean for our life together. So my calling um, came to me was to make myself available in service to God and the church. It was a gift that was given to me by the persons in the South Carolina Conference and beyond uh, who believe that they saw in me gifts that might be helpful and fruitful in the life of our denomination. And after prayerful discernment about that with my family and others, I chose to be obedient to that sense of calling that, that I was feeling and I was affirmed in that by others in our annual conference. And what a privilege it is uh, to have persons say to you that they believe that you have gifts, grace, and fruit uh, for service to God's church. I've been serving in the United Methodist Church now for 30 years, uh, and my life really has been shaped and formed by the United Methodist Church. Uh, I grew up uh, in the South Carolina Annual Conference, was raised at Epworth Children's Home, a United Methodist Children's Home in the South Carolina Annual Conference, 
And so every good thing that has happened to me along the way in terms of my shaping and my formation as a pastor, as a disciple, uh, as a follower of Christ has been a part of the United Methodist Church. The church has helped me to get there. Uh, and so in serving across these 30 years and the things that I've learned along the way, um, my experience of our process at our jurisdictional conference uh, was to be able to offer myself and to be as transparent as I could be with others about my convictions, about my love for God and the church, about my hopes for the church. And each of us who were nominees and all who were there, uh, I think, recognized that our experience was taking place in the context of a church and society that is deeply polarized, particularly in the United Methodist Church around the issues of human sexuality. Uh, cultural competency and cultural humility, I think, were not considered to be virtues, but characterized as being either politically correct or woke or uh, any other contemporary term that one might want to use. I simply prefer to refer to those terms as sin, because uh, I think that's more of a theological kind of language. But I, I believe that the reality is, is that we're in the middle of a struggle of what it means to be moving the church forward, to ask questions about how do we engage the world around us? How do we make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world? And what does that transformation look like? Uh, and so in the context of being able to offer yourself as an Episcopal candidate, you seek to be as authentic and as vulnerable as you can be, but to recognize that because we're living in a very polarized situation, that every word that was spoken, uh, every comment that was made was going to be seen through a particular kind of lens. Uh, and, and you sort of know that going in but you're seeking to be faithful to the calling which God has given to you, which is to make yourself available, to place your trust in God. Uh, but as a part of that, there came to be a measure of pain and despair um, that are real, but God's ability to make all things new are even greater, and uh, the ability to, to keep your heart and mind at peace gives you a sense of comfort about that. But that doesn't change the fact that along the way that there was pain, uh, hurt, woundedness. Um, resilience is needed now more than ever in the life of the church. I, I think the woundedness came from the fact that our process didn't work uh, perhaps as well as we would have hoped that it would have worked. That is that we had candidates who offered themselves who were vetted, uh, who had been through a process within an annual conference that was then given over to the jurisdiction. Um, and in offering yourself and making yourself vulnerable, there were some places along the along the way where people took personal shots uh, to try to dirty you up, to assassinate character. And when you're in the life and ministry of the church, those things can be particularly hurtful, uh, less than fruitful. Uh, and so what did I learn? I, I learned that we are still living in the already and not yet. Already God has broken into the world and is fully redeeming the world, but we saw the evidence of the fact that the world is not fully that which God intends for it to be. The journey continues, and we still have a very, very long way to go in our conversation about race. Um, I've not lost hope because I believe in the resurrection and I believe in Christ, uh, but I do believe that we have to have a very honest conversation about race. What does it mean that there were nine persons who were part of a journey together, praying together, spending time with one another, getting to know one another who were vetted, uh, and that 
um, all of those persons who offered themselves were worthy candidates, but that there were persons who felt a need either to step back, as an example, uh, because we wanted a more inclusive church, someone like my friend Amy Cole, who I've known for long years, seminary classmate, beloved, who felt like she needed to be able to step back because she wanted uh, our church to be more inclusive, uh, to be seen and to be affirmed. What does it mean that there were um, six persons of color who were all vetted by their annual conferences and the jurisdiction and the body chose to go beyond the scope of that uh, to consider other candidates? That's all a part of our process. And in many ways, the body did what it was that the body wanted to do. But in the season of our church's life, it felt a lot more like being right was more important than relationships. Uh, and I think that we can do better than that. I don't think that we can ever settle for that. Uh, so that was a part of my experience at jurisdiction, a part of my frustration. A part of my hope was to um, see a more diverse group of persons at our jurisdiction than I'd seen in the past. Uh, I've now been to five jurisdictional conferences. Uh, this was about as diverse as I can remember our jurisdictional conferences being across age, uh, gender, uh, inclusion, perspective, theology. Uh, so there was some hope in the fact that our church is still becoming fully that which God intends for it to be. Um, but what are some of the things that I would have hoped that we would have learned from this situation? I think it is, is that when we are learning to um, recognize cultural competency, that we also have to recognize cultural humility. Um, I happen to be someone who is an African-American male, uh, but I am a man which means that I carry around and see the world through a particular kinds of lens. I also happen to be an African-American, uh, and that, that sets a particular sort of sensitivity about how we operate in the world, uh, and that we are people who live in multiple strands. Uh, what I recognize is that we all still have blind spots. We all still have blind spots. We don't always get it right. Uh, and the longer we stay on that journey, there's a better chance for us to be able to make progress along the way. But when I speak of what it means to be progressive, what I mean by that is the fact that God is still at work in redeeming the world and that the church has still got to bear witness to the world that there's a difference between the world and the church that we are people who honestly are seeking and striving to become more of what God intends for us to be. And we don't always get that right where works in, in process. Uh, and so that's a, a part of the thing that I would love for you to know and my hope for the church. Uh, I'll say a little bit more at the end of our time together in terms of what I might say to Generation Z uh, and, and to talk a little bit about what I believe is some hope for us or what I think about the fact that in the United Methodist Church that we're still a denomination which is pretty predominantly Anglo, 90%. Um, there are some real challenges to that and some real opportunities for that. Um, so I want to now yield the floor and give the opportunity for my colleagues to be able to share. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Pastor, we look forward to to engage you more, asking some questions about you know your experience there and and as how we can move the church forward. Um, at this time, we're going to invite Episcopal nominee from the Holston Conference, um, Reverend Sharon Bowers. Well, hello everyone, and I am honored to be here. And um, I'm just going to speak for just a few moments regarding uh, it. We, not only was it the challenge of being at the SEJ and being the nominee from the Black Methodist for Church Renewal at the Holston Conference, but it was the original structural racism mm. that 
affected me greatly. So I, I had an opportunity for a double whammy. For instance, in my conference, which is predominantly white, predominantly Anglo, um, it was unheard of, unheralded that someone like me who had not been a district superintendent, who had not served at the cabinet level would have the audacity to consider themselves in the running for bishop. So as a delegate, there were two people who were um, uh, running and one of them was fit all the, the traditional white markers. They were white, they'd been a district superintendent, they'd served on uh, capacities outside the jurisdiction. You know, they'd done some things, quote unquote, but when we were both discerning and they decided that they no longer wanted to do that, well, if you follow tradition as we usually do in our church, then it would have been left up for me to have been the, the nominee that they would have endorsed. And this is the actual conference. It did not go that way. Instead, we went through a whole trajectory of countless ways of trying to vet me, uh, countless ways of me having to go before my colleagues who were um, uh, also nominees to say that I was worthy, only to be told repeatedly that I was not worthy to do that with reasons that they said were not real reasons. Because logically, I fit all the descriptions that it takes to be a nominee or candidate for bishop. I was an elder in full and good connection with the Holston Conference, end of subject. But it didn't go like that. So I think some of these things that we experience at jurisdiction are in, they're traditionally in the the conferences one if you say or if you if the tradition is that you need to be a district superintendent however if you serve in a conference that generally has one person of color at a time as a uh, a district superintendent then that right there in and of itself is a challenge um if you say that that person generally needs to have served a large church well, if you don't do cross-racial appointments on the regular, or you do not do cross-racial appointments according to the way that the, the Book of Discipline says, encourages us to do cross-racial appointments, you just throw something and see if it sticks. Well, if you do that and you say tradition says that you have to serve a large church and there are no large African-American churches, and you generally appoint African-American people to African-American churches and white people to white churches, that's your general. If you do that, then the traditions that you say have to be in place in order for you to be considered a valid nominee, as well as when you nominate people for the uh, to serve as delegates, you usually have one black lay delegate and one black clergy delegate. That's the end of it. So all of the entrees, all of the ways that you say lead up to you getting the endorsement for your conference are closed from the beginning unless you fit the criteria, which is generally and has been for 54 years. I am the first nominated Black person from the Holston Conference, and it did not come from the Holston Conference, but it came from the Black Methodist for Church Renewal in the Holston Conference. But in 54 years, I was the only person of color that had ever been in that place. So the structural racism and the systemic racism is, is there and, and it causes, it really, it's the gatekeeper. So it keeps people from getting in. And then once you get in, there is the perception and the perception for me, the way that I translated what was happening to me is that I was out of my place and that I should not have been in that place. And because I was in that place and it was an out of place experience, then I was not gonna be endorsed. And even down to when we start looking at what happens at the jurisdiction, when we get there, you know, the talk was originally, we're gonna vote for her for the first time, but we're not gonna vote anymore. Because that, that's the behind the scenes kinds of ways that things actually happen. So for me, 
not only was jurisdictional challenging and you know degrading and belittling and all of those kinds of things, but I had the prep before I got there of having to go against the tide, having to not have the support of my other delegates, not having that and and not being and and the fact that they never were willing to change that and the fact that their own vetting process was about four times I had to go before the delegates and even unheard of and unheralded things happen like we've never gone out to all of the elders in the conference and said hey would you like to be a nominee for bishop but when I was their only nominee they decided to go back to all the elders and sent a memo out and said, hey, does anybody else really want to, to run for bishop? So it was all of those kinds of things leading up to getting there and then to have to have that experience. And so these are structural and systemic racism uh, challenges that our conference, that our jurisdiction, that our general church actually faces. And for me, it is both a heart and um, a head issue. And it's something for us to be challenged. And, and also, I think the oppressed also do that. I was with one of our conferences and they said to me, well, you're, you're a, a strong woman. You're much more impressive than your bio. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, the fact that you had not been a district superintendent, the fact that you had not served on cabinet. So they too had bought into the oppressor's language of what it takes for you to be included. So I guess, you know, when you look at all these, these, these kinds of challenges that are before us and what has to happen and how we can move and, and, and how we can uh, find some equity in this, it is by far uh, a difficult thing for us to do because the root, the root is corrupt. And so if you want to go all the way back to 1968, wherever you want to start with this, the root of this whole process is corrupt. And it's challenging for people, uh, all people, but especially for people who are uh, white people to actually see this any other way than I have the power to allow you access to the resources and I will decide which resources I will allow you access to. And if you don't fit into that category, then we don't need or want you. And, and also the power that, that, that groups can exude, like our LGBTQ plus community. I'm a very progressive person. I'm for full inclusion, but the power that was exhibited there is the same power that other groups need. And so I said to the LGBTQ plus community, you, you know, it's like this, anything that you're fighting for, if it's not anti-racist, it doesn't work. And so all of our systems, we have to figure out how to fight them together. We just cannot fight them individually. So the work is collective work. The work is collaborative, just like our trauma. And so I, I think we've got to go back and kind of just take a look at who we are and who we want to be. And for me, I'm going to continue to fight the fight. I, I told somebody the other day, I was fighting anti-racism and fighting systems of oppression before it had a name in our conference, before the general church came out and said, oh, we're going to dismantle racism. It was already within me from a justice perspective to, to try and dismantle the racism. And so I'm an advocate for when I see racism, I'm going to call it out. And what that does is it, it sets up systems of retaliation, reprisal, all of those things. And so in my conference, what happens to me is whenever there's a job that's advertised outside of the conference, I get a phone call from someone that's on the cabinet or someone that's in the know that says, hey, Sharon, there's a wonderful job at such and such a place. And when I read it, I, I thought about you it just seemed like it was you. Are you going to apply for it? Well, what that says to me, the code is you're never going to be 
quote unquote promoted or used in a leadership capacity in our conference, but we recognize the gifts in you and we could see that they sure would be well used somewhere else. So, uh, you know, for me, the struggle is real, but I'm not going to give up and I'm going to continue to fight the fight that I believe all of us have to have so that we will no longer be the kind of people that are, I think it was Bishop Robin Dees uh, who said something the other day, I think, it, and I, I, I think she said it similar like this. She said she longed for the time when appointments would be made by grace rather than by race. And I, I couldn't have said it better. I wish I'd have been, I wish I'd been the one that said it because that's how I've been living my life is that appointments, if we really are itinerant, if we really do have an itinerant system, then that's what it needs to be. Not we're going to send someone black to a white church and hope it sticks, or we're going to send someone black, someone white who's used up, who's ready to retire, who really does not want to try to grow the church, but we'll put them in that black church for, for because they can hold it together until a better time. So anyway, I know I'm rambling, but I, I feel real strongly about how important it is for us to change these systems and to not give up and to not give in because uh, in, a, in a, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but where we are 90% white and where racism is pervasive and where it's always been there and, and it's systems that are set up that way. I mean, we're talking about a Methodist South and a Methodist North. We're, and we're talking about that in the last you know century kind of thing. We're not talking about, all of these things giving way, and now we can all sit at the table and say kumbaya. So um, I just hope that as we have these conversations, and I consider it an honor to be here because you're actually having the conversations. You're actually having them because there are some conferences, and I would, con I would concur that my conference is not having the conversation. We are not. We have a dismantling racism team, but we are doing nothing. And I would imagine that there are lots of other conferences that have the same quote unquote mandate and are doing nothing. So I commend you and some of the other conferences, Western North Carolina, some people that are really taking this challenge that is before us and deciding that we can do this because I really do believe that we can do this, but I'm not sure that we want to do it. So I know I'm gone over my minute. No, but... Great. <laughs> I appreciate everything you're sharing. It's inspiring and you know, when you're listening, when I'm listening to you, you're reminding me to continue the fight, continue the fight mm -hmm. and do the best that you can and don't give up. And it's going to change. Hopefully it's going to change. And, and, and it takes people like you to to remind the next generation to keep moving forward. So we want to hear more from you when we get to that Q&A section, because I have so many questions for you. Thank you so much for sharing so confidently, so boldly and, and giving us so much to think about. Um, mm -hmm. We're, we're going to turn to uh, the Reverend Dr. Sharon Austin. Uh, we may be biased. She's from Florida. You know, this is a Florida podcast that we do here. So um, <laughs> we're thankful for your time. And, and please share with us some your experience in, in jurisdictional conference. Thank you so much, Erwin. Uh, I want to begin by expressing my gratitude to you uh, as a member of our conference uh, and our anti-racism coordinators. Uh, Lee and Jonah Hall Perkins, the reverends, Lee and Jonah Hall Perkins, uh, because uh, there was a way for me to immediately return from jurisdictional conference and connect uh, with folks who uh, really helped to shepherd this work uh, where uh, we could have a hearing and where we had the opportunity for the results that we are experiencing today. 
Uh, also, because we're the host conference for this particular table talk, I want to thank my colleagues, the Reverend Ken Nelson, the Reverend Sharon Bowers, uh, for the good work, for the opportunity to connect. They both alluded to the fact that we had an opportunity to connect on a regular basis as uh, nominees. That's not something that everyone was aware of, but we connected for a time of sharing and prayer uh, each week um, uh, prior to uh, the jurisdictional conference. Uh, and uh, it was a time I thought um, well spent. Uh, one of the thoughts that comes to my mind immediately um, are the words that we often hear uh, at uh, awards uh, ceremonies uh, where people come forward to receive an award. And they usually begin with something that sounds like, and I wanna thank the Academy, it's an honor just to be nominated. Well, many fewer people say that who are not also holding the Oscar. So let me just begin with that. Uh, this was a lot of work and a lot of prayer uh, just to be nominated if there was no realistic way for it to go beyond the nomination. I'm very proud that in Florida, I had the opportunity to serve as a nominee. I will always be grateful for the confidence, uh, the time, the energy, uh, the finances that were invested in the process of my nomination. And to Sharon's point, not in exactly the same way, I was also honored to serve as the first woman of color uh, to become uh, a nominee. And that uh, speaks volumes about the Florida Conference. I also want to say, you may be thinking or wondering that our conversation today is not about the characters or the individuals who were elected. Let me say that quickly, uh, speaking for myself, I had the privilege of knowing each of the three bishops um, before they were elected and before any of us were nominees. And actually I knew all but one of the nominees uh, prior to the process. So these are folks uh, with whom I uh, have had the opportunity for a, a collegial relationship. And two of the bishops who were elected are actually people that I worked with um, across the connection. And so all are fine people. Uh, one, uh, Tom Berlin, first elected, is serving our Florida conference. And we've already been engaged in much work that is fruitful. Uh, I've received a new appointment under Bishop Berlin, uh, serving as the East Central District Superintendent. Uh, so there's a little recycling going on here because I've served as a superintendent on two previous occasions. Uh, but it's important to lay that out because if we don't name it, someone comes away and misses the richness of everything that has been shared about history, about systems, and about a future, and thinks this is only a conversation on the part of people who were not elected. I don't mind saying for a moment that if you are uh, offer yourself for something particularly as important as the work of uh, offering yourself for kingdom work, offering yourself to the church after a lifetime of serving in uh, one capacity or another, you do feel a sense of pain and maybe even disconnect when those gifts are not recognized in ways that will allow you to continue serving in yet another capacity. 
I'm a person who felt like I was as qualified as anyone elected. I was as qualified as anyone not elected. So it wasn't uh, a more than or a less than. I was just as qualified as anyone elected. When I think about um, what we just heard Reverend Bauer share, I'm also aware that annual conferences have to provide an on-ramp for opportunities for leadership if we are going to the space of the jurisdiction where for most people we would value, say, cabinet experience. I don't believe for a minute that we would have elected a woman or a person of color if they had not had cabinet experience. Yet the first person we elected, our new bishop in Florida, openly acknowledged to us as he arrived in Florida, I come as a person who needs to learn. I have not been in the cabinet space prior to this very moment. And so there's a way in which we have um, almost a code, one set of qualifications for one group of folks and another set of qualifications for others, but that's not openly stated. We make those decisions at the time when we vote. Now, I was the most seasoned of the nominees. That is by virtue of age. And I will say uh, I was once too young to get a driver's license and now too old to run for bishop. Um, our polity in light of COVID was not sufficient to hold a global pandemic and a major catastrophe. What do I mean by that? We lived within the static rules of our polity as it had been set, and we didn't have a way to make adjustments in light of the pandemic. That was a challenge, and we lived with the anxiety of wondering and waiting for judicial rulings to determine if we could even hold jurisdictional conferences. And we had to do that throughout the connection. Uh, when we finally arrived and it seemed we could do so with relative safety and engaged in the process, it soon became apparent that maybe we were voting in ways that would give us some assurance that the people that we customarily elect are the people we needed to customarily elect. And so we elected two white nominees fairly early, first and fairly early. And then I described the horror of sitting and waiting and watching as nominees of color. My colleagues have already spoken to the vetting, to the qualification, the list goes on until we got to the 25th ballot. And then we didn't elect a nominee who had been vetted we elected someone who was nominated from the floor who was vetted in the larger uh, gathering of people because we know Bishop Robin Dees and we know her to be a person of excellent character and uh, an outstanding leader. But it does make us wonder about the validity and the necessity of the process we set forth. Two, almost three years out of our lives were spent answering questions, preparing in prayer, receiving endorsements, the list just goes on. And frankly, we might have done better if we just created an opportunity for each nominee to have 10 to 15 minutes to address the body. 
that would have been um, much less arduous, much less demanding, and would have been at least equally effective to the process that we use, if not more. I'm concerned about what it said to people in our church. Maybe in a different way, I'm even more concerned about what it said to people who are not in our church. They have heard us ring the bell of justice around LGBTQ concerns and people, and we are on board with lifting uh, our siblings and championing uh, a church that is inclusive. I think the question is, is it really a church that is inclusive? And what does it mean for us to say we're an anti-racist church, but then to have practices where in a year in the Southeastern jurisdiction, not Western, Southeastern, we had six nominees of color. We had that kind of wealth and that kind of diversity, and yet could elect no one from that group. We have a particular history in the South that we are always um, trying to overcome in one way or another. But an anti-racist church has to put its money where its mouth is. And if we're gonna talk the talk, we have to walk the walk. And I think we had a significant missed opportunity um, at jurisdictional conference. When I think about the election of Bishop Sharma Lewis, I remember 2012 when we left in considerable pain. And then I remember the joy of her election in uh, 2016. We had an opportunity that was missed. We could have and should have done more and better with the nominees that we had in addition to anyone nominated from the floor. We just needed to have, I think, a different look. And the fact that we didn't uh, is a stain on uh, our jurisdiction uh, for years to come. My role, I'll just conclude by saying uh, this, is um, now, and I've already begun this, really speaking into um, the lives and ministries of uh, such capable leaders that we have. Uh, I say in my conference, doesn't have to be limited to my conference, but uh, I certainly want people to know, don't give up the fight. You will do this work one day. I, I've actually said this to someone, I intend to say it to others, but the only way that that becomes true is if we do the work to change the system and point out its flaws and then uh, together work uh, to improve it uh, going forward. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Austin, for sharing your experience and for sharing those insights um, and for encouraging us to continue to fight the good fight. Um, I have some questions for the team. And if you have any questions, please feel free to put them in the chat. And this is a question that I've been dying to ask you guys. That I've literally just been thinking about this for a week and I hope it comes out okay. I hope it's not too controversial, but I was sitting in a meeting with other clergy pastors and in that meeting uh, were some seasoned pastors as, as um, Dr. Austin actually shared, uh, African-American, but also I'm looking around the room and thinking about all of the clergy who are doing this work of anti-racism especially in the Florida conference. And we're striving to diversify our church. We're thinking about the fact that our church is 90% white and we're working hard towards this white clergy and clergy of color. And the Bishop was presenting 
And as you know, our bishop is Bishop Berlin. He's a white male. And I'm, and I'm kind of just looking at the pastors in the room and thinking to myself, what do they think? They've been working hard to diversify our church. And we have a bishop who is, is doing the best that he can, who is another white male. How do we receive that? And, and not just in the Florida conference and other conferences as, as well. How do we receive that? Do you have any advice for us? What does this mean for the church? Are we progressing? Are we regressing? Um, give us some insight here. I think if we um, if we're in this work with people who acknowledge not only the reality of who they are, Bishop Berlin and I had conversation uh, very early on, in fact, before he arrived in Florida, where uh, he acknowledged the particular position he realized is that he is in and was in being the first elected and being a white male. Uh, complicated a little bit, I guess, by coming to Florida where the nominee who wasn't elected uh, is a black woman. Um, but when people acknowledge it and then it just kind of sits uh, uh, in the air, that's one way of um, speaking the truth of the situation. To take that and then acknowledge the harm done to others, the work we can do together uh, in the midst of a very imperfect system is a very, very different um, way to move forward. No one needs to apologize for who God created them uh, to be. I think that's a part of what it means to be uh, an inclusive church. But where there are significant and historic um, uh, advantages, that's the way to then leverage the privilege uh, going forward. Uh, I want to say this very quickly. I assume people know, but sometimes they don't. I mentioned my seasoning earlier, my age relative to the required retirement age um, by the Book of Discipline. And I would have had a significantly abbreviated term had I been elected. Uh, people continue to say to me, so as recently as uh, earlier this week, there were people who were high on you, but their concern was the shortened term. Uh, I take that at face value. What it doesn't explain is why you didn't elect one of five other people who were nominees of color. All younger, and all with a longer time to serve. So when we begin to speak the truth, we just need to make certain that that's what we're speaking and not what people um, want to hear or what we think we need to say. Uh, Sharon, I, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, our challenge that, that we seem to face, and, and I'm speaking more, you know, from my own conference, but I think racism is racism and it's the same, whether it's polite, whether it's traditional, whatever adjective we want to call on it, it's the same, the marginalization and the disenfranchised of people who are brown and black. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the, when we, when we see these things and we say something, the challenge is getting enough of us to say it. Many of us see it, but saying it is the difficult thing. And so even for us to be in this conversation right now and for this conversation to be recorded, um, there are, that's why I said I go for broke at this point mm -hmm. because the retaliation and the reprisal is such that most people when they came from being a part of this were asked to serve on the cabinet, not mm -hmm. my case. 
not my case at all. And, and such the fraternal order of bishops is such that it would be hard for me to go anywhere and get an opportunity to serve in a leadership mm -hmm. capacity. And yet, my if you looked at my vita and my resume and you looked at the work that I do now, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at the collegiate level, if you looked at that, you would say, this person could be beneficial to us right now. But because yes. I dare to challenge a system and I dare to challenge a former bishop because of some of the antics that were going on in our conference, then I am permanently marked permanently marked so mm -hmm. you know i wake up some days and i say is this worth it to continue this because of the challenges that i face you know just going to work every day you know working while black preaching while black mm -hmm. all of those things are real and and the way that they affect you it affects you so grossly that it makes it difficult for any of us to say anything in particular because our appointment system that is supposed to be filled with discernment is as political as any other entity that there ever was. Now, I'm not saying that individuals like you all who serve on the cabinet are not discerning. I would never say that. I'm not saying that you're not you framed. Mm -hmm. But the powers that be, sometimes it's, are you more like them? Not what kind of gifts and graces do you bring to the table, but yeah. how close in proximity are you to them? And so from an intersectional perspective, as a Black woman, I'm going to be really far away every time. And so mm -hmm. are all the other Black women. And so I think because there were you know, what, three of us that were Black women of the six? Yes. Four, four, four. I can't remember. Anyway, you that, yeah, that that really pushed it where we were really out of the ballgame. So when they, who, who was really up for the vote was not originally going to be us as Black women. It was mm -hmm. going to be, because that's what the jurisdiction has done every time. It took until 2016 for a Black woman to be elected. So One. these things that are built in our structure continue to, to, we just see it as the status quo. And for me, there needs to be a new quo. And I'm calling for it, whatever yep. it looks like. I hear you. This is part of it. So I'm, I'm grateful mm -hmm. to be here. Yes. I do want to just briefly say that uh, what does it mean for our denomination? The fact that it's 90% white, uh, which means that we're less diverse than we were in 68, not more so. Um, uh, here, here's what I want to offer in that regard. And I hope you'll hear the heart from which it comes. Diversity is a gift and a challenge, and the hard work of the church will not happen unless we confront our fears, unless we embrace our hopes, and unless we keep the cross of Christ at the center. I don't mean that in some sort of spiritualized kind of way. I'm saying that my primary identity as a follower of Christ is in my baptism, and that every day my life gets redefined by what it means to follow Jesus. And there are some things and some self-understandings about myself that get surrendered to that. And there are some things that I affirm and embrace as a part of that. And in the same way that I want to be given the fullness of the space to become fully the person that God's called me to be, I want to give my brothers and sisters that same full kind of space to become the persons that God's called them to be. And to know that those things are going to bump into one another. And there are times in which we're all going to have to surrender and to find ways to ask, what does it mean for us to see the fullness of the Imago Dei, the image of God, and that we need one another in order to be able to see that, but that does not diminish nor take away the pain or the reality of racism within the life of our church. Uh, but our hope is always to keep the cross before us and to be reminded that we are pressing always towards the mark, and that there has to be somebody who calls that out for what it is, and what it is is sin. And I don't want to dance That's around that. Um, I don't want to belittle that 
all of the words matter, but they, we still talk about it in the life of the church is sin, but we all have to live in those realities every day. And so I, I, I'm hopeful in the sense that we are one part of the faith community where we have made a measure of progress. And I don't want us to ever lose sight of that, but having made a measure of progress is not to say that we have arrived or that we have become fully the people that God has called us to be. The, the spaces of intersectionality are where we have to continue to do that kind of work. But we've always got to keep Christ at the center for me personally. What is often not said, uh, Dr. Nelson, and thank you so much because I couldn't agree more, um, is that we are a white church to which we graciously allow right. people of color to enter and participate, maybe not as much in leadership, but but enter and participate to an extent. So we don't say that, right. uh, but if we believe it and we practice it, then that speaks for itself. Our goal, particularly if we want to become an anti-racist church, not there yet, is to become the church of Jesus Christ in which all people have an opportunity not only to enter and participate, but to lead and to serve. Uh, and to Reverend Bauer's point earlier, um, we have really um, championed and stood in the place with our LGBTQ uh, siblings over these years, and that is long overdue. But we have to figure out how to be people of justice along more than one lane at a time because there are intersections of racism within the LGBTQ community. Uh, and that is something that is often not recognized. It's not addressed uh, and it is its own horror. We're gonna have to figure it out. And I remember sharing with our delegation um, several years ago, we were attending a, a conference um, uh, outside of our uh, state and I said, we need to remember that if we are really going to be advocates for justice, that means flinging the door of injustice open wide. It doesn't mean we're gonna open it a crack and let some people through and then decide later, well, maybe it's your turn now. We're gonna to have to open the door wide. Uh, and when I think about the words of Dr. King and the title of his book, Why We Can't Wait, you know, that was really addressed to um, so many people in the church and the clergy who needed to understand that the time is now. So the BMCR theme comes to my mind. Our time under God is now. It's not tomorrow. It's not when we, you know, accomplish or gain whatever it is people think some of us ought to be comfortable waiting for. And I am sick and tired of having injustice measured by uh a clock uh, by the folks who are in power uh, and they think that, you know, the, the oppressed ought to be comfortable waiting for it to be measured by a calendar. Our time under God is now and you can either live with the clock or the calendar, but I will speak to the, to the reality that people who have lived with the calendar, you can wait, just wait your turn, your time is coming, are sick and tired of living with calendar. We want to live by the clock. And, and I offer, you know, the same as, as uh, Dr. Ken and Dr. Sharon. 
from the perspective of, you know, I think radical intentionality is what we have to do. And it's scary and it's frightful. I'm writing a book now. I don't know if it'll ever materialize, but the title of the book right now is Well-Intended White People and Black Dinosaurs. And, and I, I say that because that's kind of the crux. That's kind of where we are. We're, we're where we have well-intended white people who are trying to do the work of anti-racism. And then we have black people who want it to come at the, at the behest of the white people when that's the old way of doing it. You know, so some things we, we have to decide that we're not gonna let happen anymore and we're not gonna take it anymore and that we are sick and tired and that we are in this together and that we're gonna work and not be afraid. So I think there has to be some radical way of, of approaching this. And, and, I, and I do believe this starts with conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a firm believer of conversation and I'm a firm believer of reading. Reading okay. is a form of resistance. So okay. you could radicalize your reading and your talking and your discussion and do a whole lot more. It doesn't do us any good when we just read a book and say, oh, well, my personally, I know a little bit more mm -hmm. than I do before I read the book. But if we're reading the book with resistance in mind, then that can, our intention can be radical and we can be the difference. And, and I just think that we, we have to start doing that. And it seems that we're afraid to do it. We're afraid. I was in a work shop the other week and great guy doing great work and I was listening to him and and part of his work part of he part of what he was saying is that age old adage about you know you can get more uh flies with honey or what than vinegar mm -hmm. whatever, one of those kinds of things and basically what he was saying was for black people to adjust where they are so that white people can come along. And I was blown away because he's well-respected, revered, and people are taking his stuff and he's finishing a dissertation and, and his stuff is going around the country. But that was what he said. And he mm -hmm. had some ideas. It was all based on reconciliation. Uh -huh. But I don't know about you all, but I don't think that's worked for us. We would ask, I'd ask that question, how's it working for us so far? Because mm -hmm. predominantly black and brown people have waited, even though the burden was placed on us to deal with this racism, this system that was never ours in the beginning, the burden's been placed on us. And we've been walking soft-footed for the last, and if you look at it just in terms of the Methodist church, we've been walking soft-footed the last soon to be 55 years. And what has it gotten us? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's time to do that radical intentionality, do some confrontation, all in the spirit of God. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'll just say this. The other thing is that those of us, I am a self-proclaimed prophet. I come from the School of Prophets. Uh, shout out for Gammon Theological <laughs> Seminary, Liberation <laughs> Theology, and all of that. But uh, it's, it's really a lonely life to, to speak the prophetic. And yet it's going to take many people speaking the prophetic word of God. You know, when Jesus stood up and said, this is my mission, it's going to take many of us to follow that same mission to set the captive free, you know, to try to eradicate oppression. And we're going to have to say those things and it's going to have to be done prophetically. But with that comes consequences. Even if we just read our text, every prophet, they want to get rid of them. You know, they want to muscle, muscle them out. And so it's trying to find that balance. And, and again, I think that balance comes with radical intentionality. We just have to do it. I, so, I appreciate Go ahead, Alistair. I was just going to say, Reverend Bowers, you, you've hit on something. And it's really, I think, one of the, the key pieces to this. What can we do, right? What do we do starting today? What can we do? And I want to hear from all of y'all, if you don't mind. I don't want to go back to an SCJ and experience the the hurt, the trauma. I, you know, it's it's 
it's it, we need it, it's got to stop i mean it's just it's to your point it's sin it's not right uh, it's not who we are called to be it is not the beloved community it's not creating anything beloved in my opinion what help us to think through what do we do now what what how do we how do we take action at this point to try to help things change and what does that look like I have a two-year-old that's hollering in the background, so I'll try to talk over her. She's as loud as I am. But um, one of the things that I think that we have to do is confront the systems, because a lot of what happened at SEJ is historic and herstoric. And the people that are benefiting from it have always benefited from it. So I think we have to go back and confront some of those systems. So when we look at if it's tradition that the person who's elected first and second, at least in our conference it is, I don't know about the rest of the conference, but the persons who are elected first and second, the first uh, laity and the first clergy get to serve on the SEJ Episcopacy Committee. I think that's pretty much all. Well, who is going to be sitting down there every time, every year? For the most part, the system says that it'll be white people sitting there making decisions about our jurisdiction. So systematically, there are some things that I think we need to approach. And, and that may require letter writing. It may require what might appear to be confrontation. But I think we have to do and say the hard thing, starting with looking at our systems. I mean, we, we said at the, at the jurisdictional conference, one of the things we said is that we would look at our systems. And as far as I know, this is the first time we've been looking at our systems. I don't know about the rest of the, the nominees, but I've not been called for any other thing except this right here. So we're, we don't want to look at our systems. Reverend Ken, or? I, I would say, um, I'm going to tell you a, a, an old truth that my grandmother taught me. She said, a half truth is still a whole lie. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a Amen. part of that half truth still being a whole lie is to not speak the truth to power um to not name racism to not mm. name sin where it is um that is to deceive the body of christ uh, to keep believers from becoming that which god fully intends for them to be so i think a, the first step for me is naming the reality on the ground not lying about it but disclosing it naming powers and principalities as the scriptures talk about it that's one thing the second thing that I think that we need to do is I think we need to point to the places of progress where progress has occurred so that people don't lose hope. We point to the places where we have mm -hmm. been fruitful and places where we are building bridges and not walls uh, to help people to be able to see and to remember that there's holy imagination that God is still on the throne. Friends, this didn't catch God by surprise, just us. Nope. God has been well aware of this and, and God is still working in the world. And I think we have to always be mindful of that. And then I think we have to always keep pointing to the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I want to say that to Generation Z, that you are a, a good gift from God. You've been given a holy imagination and we have to bless that holy imagination and expand it out. But even as you build a new world, you're going to have to ask yourself, do you want to build bridges or do you want to build walls? Do we want to lose sight of people and relationships or do we want to be more concerned about being right? than right relationship. And I think we're always gonna to have to keep asking those kinds of questions. We still have to account for the human equation. And I hope that we'll always remember that the gospel is timeless. Uh, here's a, a reality. The pace of change is happening faster and faster and faster. And, and it is not typically so much change that people are resistant to, but it's the transition. It's about how we get there that keeps tripping us up over and over. And so I, I just want to say to us, as we think about that, is how do we hold these two things together, always speaking the truth in love, 
pointing to the places where God is still at work in the world and pointing that to brothers and sisters and then being a part of that change that we all want to become. I think that, um, you know, underlying uh, the, the sharing of uh, power is always, and this is just a paraphrase, the underlying question is, what do I have to give up? What do I have to lose? And the church will need to answer that question uh, honestly so that there's a way to move from what do I have to give up to what do I have to gain by sharing power and opening the church and leveling the playing field. Uh, we uh, are often far too philosophical uh, about the work of anti-racism. And we think because we have a conversation and we all sat around the table and we're willing to come back for another meeting that we have done the work. Uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi reminds us that we don't have to use the term systemic racism. Uh, that's actually redundant because racism is baked into the system. Uh, and so if we are not willing to actually do the work, address the system, push back, call it what it is, and then hold ourselves accountable for incremental change along the way. What do we see? If it looks the same way it looked last year or five years ago, then maybe we ought not call that progress, regardless of how many meetings we're all willing to attend. We need to set goals. If we aren't reaching them, then we aren't making progress. Doesn't matter how much we love one another and who's on the committee. And I just think we've not done this work well because we haven't done it honestly. To be an anti-racist church is going to have a different look than the way it looks today. And it might not look significantly different in six months or a year, but if it looks the same way, jurisdictional conference after jurisdictional conference, then we have just been living a lie and spending uh, time and money and, and doing so unwisely. The, the, the truth is not in us. And I guess, and I know we've got to go, but I, I wanted to say this because this is my ultimate plan. And I hope that some of you will decide that it can be your plan too, and we can work it together. But uh, from an intersectional perspective and to address these systems, I, I have something that I call just attack the systems. And I know that's violent for some people, but we are in a disruptive place where this is a time for disruptive leadership. Any other kind of leadership is not going to work because we're not going to go back to the way it was ever again for anybody. So mm -hmm. we should try to figure out from a disruptive leadership perspective how to move forward and how to do it successfully. And it may be as, as Dr. Ken and Dr. Sharon and others have been saying, it may be that we have to address the system. And so for me, I have something that I say, attack the system. And this is part of my dissertation work that I, I told you earlier, I was supposed to turn in today. So let me at least talk about it today. But um, I think it's important. And, and, and I call it the four A's and I believe, and this is what people like the Black Lives Matters movement, this is what protests, this is what people have been doing. And I think what we, if we want to do something at whatever level we can enter into, we ought to be about the business of agitation. There ought to be some agitation going on with the, in these systems. There ought to be some protests. There ought to be some people walking and talking into it. So agitation is critical. And I believe mm -hmm. we have to make way for, way for agency. So those people in power, and it's specifically the people with the white privilege, 
privilege and the powerful uh, places and spaces have to give agency to brown and black people and not just invite them to the table and expect them to never say anything or to stay in their place, but to invite them to the table and to actually hear what they have to say. So agency is important. And then I think from, from a real perspective, advocacy, we have to advocate. And mm -hmm. advocate means sometimes that, that you're, you're put in difficult places and hard mm -hmm. spaces and you have to say things. And then finally, I think it's important for us to get to the level of activism. And it's going to take real activism to change SEJ and all of the conferences that make it up. It's going to require mm -hmm. that activism is ongoing. And, and whether it's grassroots or whether mm -hmm. it's uh, actually orchestrated or because we see what happens when you have a general church says we're going to dismantle racism. You see people do that at the level they feel comfortable, not exactly. because they have to, just where they feel comfortable. So my four A's, I wanted to offer that, you know, because I think it's important for us to be about the business of agitation, about the business of agency, about the business of advocacy, and ultimately about the business of activism, and to come in at any point we can to change, or I say, attack the system. Yeah, so, and thank you I, for taking a long view on that. Uh, Reverend Bowers, because that's work that needs to begin today, and it will take a lifetime. Um, closer to home for me uh, is the fact that uh, I have four adult children and now two little grandsons, uh, and I do this work uh, for them. This needs to be a church where they feel that there is every opportunity to love and serve Jesus and to be whoever the Spirit leads them to be and to do whatever the Spirit leads them to do. We're not there yet, but uh, they need to know they have a mother who has served uh, faithfully in ministry for better than 40 years, who's willing to call it out and say we're not there yet, and then is willing to work on behalf of it being a better church for them and all of those uh, coming in the future. I think all of these are things that we can walk away from this conversation today, and I hope we will give prayerful thought to and be inspired by the Holy Spirit to move to action, to, be, to move to do some of these things. And who knows, you know, perhaps from this, maybe we can, maybe this can be the spark of, of planting some seeds with SEJ. You know, in my mind, I, I go back to my HR background and I think about organization design. And what is it that we're really looking for in a bishop? Have we asked ourselves that in a very, very long time? Hmm. And have we tried to help delegates who are coming into SCJ understand that uh, and what we need and what, what makes it relevant? What makes the work relevant in today's church? So there's, there's just a whole lot to this that we really need to, to begin to do. Um, Erwin, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like this has been time that has been incredibly rich and incredibly well spent. Absolutely. I want to thank each of you for sharing. And we normally end the call around 1 p.m. But as Alice was sharing, not only are, is what you're sharing insightful, but I already see the fruit of it. We have some members here. I'm going to read this here for you guys. We have several delegates from the Virginia conference on this call today and other delegates who are going to use this conversation and it's going to shape their conversation as they move forward to voting. And so we already see the fruit of this work. I want to thank you so much for sharing. And as we know, we can always continue to talk more about this. Um, but I want to respect everybody's time and want to let you know that this will end our table talk. But pastors, if you all have a little bit more time, we always like to do a little bonus footage, if that's okay. 
we'll get to some more questions, maybe five to 15 minutes of your time. But I do want to give everybody the opportunity to log off if they have to leave. Um, I also yeah. want to make one announcement. Um, the East Central District is creating a Lenten study on the topic of anti-racism. So look out in your inboxes for this um, important resource that the East Central District um, team, anti-racism team is creating. Um, so we're going to start a little bit bonus footage because I have so many questions and maybe this is just for my personal, my personal files here, but there's so much to what you're saying. Um, you're asking us to disrupt the system and I appreciate that energy and I'm all for it. Um, and I think about my white colleagues and I think about the way they receive a person who has embodied racism, who has dealt with this for generations. And when we disrupt the system, we come out pretty aggressively, right? We, I mean, we, we, are, we have some anger, some viciousness that has been boiling inside of us. And so I think about our, our colleagues, our white colleagues, what word will we have for them when they receive people? How would they receive people who are called to disrupt systems? You've heard, say, oh, go ahead. I would say the message of the gospel is always going to be foolishness to those who are not prepared to receive it. The cross itself mm -hmm. is a violent story about God's redemptive plan for redeeming the whole created order and that suffering has been embraced and transformed into something new. Uh, so the fact that we are all going to be broken in those places where we are sinful is going to uh, meet with some pain along the way. I think we just have to name that theologically and say the pain of that in our relationships with one another is genuine and authentic and real. Be prepared for the pain, but also be prepared for the redemption that happens with the resurrection. And I hold those two things together. I often um, would recall when Bishop Ken Carter was uh, the resident bishop of the Florida Conference that he used a statement that I often quoted uh, in one way or another and remembered, namely, that you will listen to the story differently if you don't have to be the hero of the story. Now, I don't think that was original with him, but when he said it, it often called to my mind the opportunities that we have to engage in truth-telling and how it falls on the ear of the listener, because both the speaker and the listener have a context. Uh, and I think if, to use uh, Reverend Bowers' term, if the goal is to sit around the table and sing Kumbaya, well, that's one goal, but it's not going to advance this cause. Uh, if, on the other hand, we are really calling people to action, so a call to action, to say that what we have now is not acceptable, uh, we don't need antagonists, we need allies, and we need to be able to do this work together, so it may not be your trauma, but it is your work. Uh, and we need to do it together uh, because what we have done as people of color is really um, embodied trauma through generations, hence the term generational trauma. Uh, we've grown up with adages such as, you have to be twice as good to get half as far. Now that may be true, but it ain't right. And so to be able to transform uh, the truth of these realities into uh, a sanctifying moment um, going forward is, is, is our goal. 
Uh, and we're, um, when, when the work is seen as the work of people of color, uh, when the, the work regarding the oppression of women or uh, our siblings in the LGBTQ community is seen as the work of the group that's already traumatized, something is wrong with that. And that's not of God. That's not of God. That's not of the gospel. And that's not prophetic. And, and I think that we have, when, when and I'm, I'm a real systems person, as you all can probably tell, but, you know, we're looking at historical and historical mm -hmm. systems of oppression. And we're looking at, you know, things like uh, Christian supremacy being equal to white supremacy. And we're yeah. looking at the stories that have been told through those lens. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we so for yes. 400 years, you kept a people enslaved because you said that our skin somehow limited itself and merited to be enslaved. And you taught that from a gospel perspective. Yes. It yes. was preached, it was taught. So the, the equivalency of white supremacy and Christian supremacy, those things together, are, it's a major challenge for us as far as for what do we do, because we can talk about, you know, Jesus and Lord and God and all of those things. But for some of us, it's a very different kind of faith. Uh, Dr. Ken is talking about, you know, uh, what faith means to him and what it means to him. It would be great if it meant the same thing to all of us, but it mm. doesn't. It does not. So here we are, you know, right now, when you look at our churches on Sunday morning, right now I'm in a cross-racial appointment. I'm just filling in. I'm the only one in my entire church every Sunday. So how am I supposed to feel being the only? And when we address Black History or African-American History Month, and I said, we're going to, <laughs> and we watched some videos and we are having some conversations and discussing, but I would gamble to say that is the first time in their 185 year history that they've ever been called to even discuss African-American or Black history. And it's a Methodist mm -hmm. South church. Yeah. I teasingly say every Sunday when I go in, the whole graveyard beside, they all turn over every Sunday <laughs> when I when I walk in. I teasingly say that, but 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 some of those things are built in. And so I, I really do believe we have to start looking at these historical and historical relationships and decide Man. that, you know, this Christian all this hegemonic stuff that we do, mm -hmm. you know, that we keep yes. building it the same exact way with the same right. people saying that this is the way it should be. And when someone else says that it should be differently because of our epistemology, because of our lived experience, we don't get any no. credit for it. We're, we're, and that's why these conversations don't work because when we're talking, we're not heard because it, some of it's coming through pain, some of it's coming through anger, as uh, Reverend Irwin said, you know, some of it's coming through these different lenses, but it's the what, it's the reality of, of, mm -hmm. of where we are, and it is our felt needs that are not being addressed, and so every Sunday, week after week, we keep going, and until some people sitting in the pews start saying, I am uncomfortable, mm -hmm only seeing people who look like me, act like me, talk like me, go to the same place that I go, the same golf course, until people start saying that, we're gonna remain a racist church. And exactly. it's not gonna change until the people in there look around and say something is wrong with how this looked until we stop having Hispanic ministries that are never incorporated into the main ministry. I mean, it's okay to count these numbers and have this over here. And I understand mm -hmm. social similarity. I understand that people like being around people who they are most like, I get that. There's a mm -hmm. difference in that and racism. There's exactly. a big difference in that and racism, but it's gonna take all of us to say we're sick and tired of, and, and, and we were talking about Gen Z. Gen Z has only ever known diversity. 
whether mm-hmm. they've embraced it or not, that's all they've ever known. You uh, still have some who, who, who are getting messages from their parents and their parents' parents, but for the most part, that's all they've ever known is diversity. So if we're going to reach them, if we're going to be able to get them to come back, if we're going to get them to keep saying to, to want to be Christians, then it's got to be a, a, a justice-driven faith that we offer because anything less than that, they're not coming and we're dying and they're not coming. And they're not coming. Exactly. You know what comes to mind to me? The Asbury revival that's happening right now. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, what would it look like for this conversation to spark a revival? Mm-hmm. What would it look like for a mm. different revival to be sparked in the churches and, and the people to stand up and say, I'm not okay with yeah. what's happening. And so I'm even thinking about everybody here. Let's just keep this conversation going. Let's just keep it going for six days. You know, let's just keep that revival going here for six days and just invite people to come into this room. But hopefully we have a a personal and a social holiness component to it. We have a question from Pastor Lee Haw Perkins. And he asks, North Georgia nominee Byron Thomas said that the UMC needs to be freed from jurisdictionalism and its legacy of racism. How do the other nominees respond to Dr. Thomas's statement? Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Let the church uh, say amen. Yeah, I think he said as much, uh, you know, when we were at jurisdictional, but we do have to be freed of the old uh, structures, I call them strictures, which have uh, held us back and keep us hemmed in. And one of the things about tradition that I find very interesting um, we want to get rid of it until uh, we realize that it that ridding ourselves of it will, by default, cause us to have to do something different. And then we realize how comfortable we really were with the tradition. So to uh, Dr. Thomas's point, uh, you know, he's exactly right. Okay. Um, I have... Um... One more question. Let's end the question. Let's end the time with this last question that I have in mind. Um, I was sitting with a, a, a pastor and he was talking about how he had an anti-racism movie night, right? And nobody showed up. He's a, a white pastor. And it appears though that experience made him give up, you know, on the work of anti-racism. And then I had another conversation with um, a leader in our conference, and they shared about how anti-racism has been politicized. The word has been politicized. Black Lives Matter has been politicized. And so it is pos- possible that that anti-racism movie night, nobody came because they immediately thought about the word anti-racism, and they thought about, you know, that it's, the word has been politicized. And we had a table talk about this. We had a conversation about this because as these things are happening, these new terms are coming up. We're learning in real time. We're adapting in real time. And so the question was, how are you dealing with this language, this politicized language? And my, my thought was, well, if they would come and continue their education, right? If we would continue to learn and grow and, and make anti-racism a part of our discipleship, we, we would ha- you would ha- already have been equipped. And so one of the pastors said, we needed to trip people into it, right? Change our language. Think of some new strategies because eventually we want people to go from the awareness level to the practice level and eventually to the level of accountability. 
And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on that in terms of changing our strategy to get more, especially white colleagues, engaged in the conversation. I'll just offer this and, and uh, uh, quickly. Um, I think if people are sort of mired in the sense that the goal of all of this is to say that some people are bad and they need to feel guilty, th that is not gonna give you, uh, you know, uh, uh, any, any leverage, that's not gonna advance the conversation. People feel the way they feel, but they need to take responsibility for that. So, I mean, if you feel guilty in a conversation about anti-racism, you can own that and, and you can name it. That's not the goal. The goal is not to make it about a white person who then also feels guilty. Uh, and I think if we're going to um, really try to have this work uh, take root and take hold in uh, our churches, we have to acknowledge all of the ways and places that it will likely make people feel uncomfortable. It's not intended to be um, uh, you know, a comfortable conversation on a balmy afternoon because it, it didn't begin in that. It began in, began in pain and violence and uh, oppression and kidnapping and rape and pillaging, you, you name it. All of that is a part of the history of racism in this uh, country. And so I think our colleagues have to do the work of preparation and sometimes have to use examples of uh, equity and inequity, maybe not even specifically addressing race, so that people begin to turn their minds toward what does equality look like? What does justice look like? What does equity look like? What are the differences? We don't have language. We don't have vocabulary. Uh, and quickly, some of the vocabulary we have had um, is, um, uh, you know, it's deplorable and, and it isn't informative. Uh, and so I think if you think you can only have a movie night and people will, uh, you know, rise to the invitation and come out in droves, uh, that may happen in some places. I would say that's not happening in most places. But to do the work of preparation, to have people see leadership that comes from other places and spaces, than what they are customarily accustomed to, maybe to have a conversation similar to this, where difficult conversations can occur, um, you know, that people, you know, don't have to, um, uh, you know, become violent in the conversation, you know, I'm talking physically violent now, uh, and, and slam doors and leave, but they stay engaged, are all ways to help to begin to whet people's appetites for the difficult work ahead. And they have to be faithful disciples who are invested in what it means to do the work of the kingdom. If your goal is preserving the church that you have always had for 185 years, well, you're already doing that. That's not difficult. What is difficult is really being the church that Jesus Christ died for and calls us to be, uh, which means doing many things in a very different way. Uh, and not seeing everything as your personal possession, but working on behalf of, uh, you know, the faith that calls us to this work to begin with. 
And I think that's like, you know, in the United Methodist Church, we talk about making a commitment to wholeness and healing and reconciliation and all those mm -hmm. other kinds of warm, fuzzy words yeah. that we like to say. And I don't want to be in any other church than United Methodist Church. Let me say that to go on record. And I love the things that we say we do. I just wish we actually did them. Amen. And so if we can find a way to do what we say we do, we are going to be an amazing group of followers of Christ. And, and, and so I hope that we, like in that case with that man, you know, trying to find some people to make a commitment to this work, because whatever we do is going to take that, because it's going to be hard. We are going to fall out. We are going to get mad at one another every now and mm -hmm. then. We are going to say that that envelope was pushed too far or, you know, forget and say something that, you know, you, 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 you say to a different crowd and you didn't think and you said it. Now, all those things are going to happen. But yep. if we have the commitment to go the long haul, to stay in it, to see then the what we were going to receive in the end is going to be so amazing. But it's just making the commitment. And then as yep. United Methodists, I think if we start calling what we have already, when we start talking about G Corps, we start talking about Cosros and we start talking about social principles, we start talking about all these things. If we say we're going to make them work and we're going to hold these up, you know, and even as Dr. Ken said, our baptismal covenant, our mm -hmm. vow, we remember what Prime. we said, that we're going to resist evil in any form that it presents itself. Man, that that's a game changer right there. Just game. to say, I'm going to live into that. Mm -hmm. Reverend Bowers, you, you you said something, and we've been talking about this in our annual conference. At annual conference last year, we talked about being table setters and table seaters, right? That that we're, it's our it's our role. I was reminded of something my mother used to say to me. She said, "Honey, you may not like it, but in this family, you have to eat your vegetables and stay at the table before you can get to dessert, right? Mm -hmm. And that's we've got we've got yep. to be steadfast in our calling to be able to create this loved community." and to eliminate the racism that we're experiencing now. And those that have decided to speak prophetic and do this, we cannot give up and we cannot nope. give in. It's tiring work. That's the thing that how tired, and, and again, white people have the privilege to go away from this. Yeah. Black and brown people never get the privilege of retreating. Nope. So, you know, we Part all have problem. to just decide that we're in this together, that we're mm -hmm. gonna, we're gonna, gonna be, yeah. take, the, take the road home together. I do want to offer a final word for me, and that is this. Um, the work of anti-racism is the work of the heart. Mm -hmm. This is work that, that comes from transformation of having encountered the living presence of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, of having lived in community and bumping up against people who are alike and different. But I have news for us. It took Jesus in 12 and 13 was one too many. Not everybody's called to live this life. And why we keep expecting the world to act like the church is confusing to me. Mm. I don't expect that of people outside of the church. I do mm. expect something different from people who long to be a part of the faith community and to say to them that following Jesus really does mean that there might be some ways and understandings of self about how the world is operating that need to be surrendered and that we cannot continue to take power structures and systems of the world to try to use them within the life of the church in that regard, because then we have compromised our own integrity. But I am also clear that the world belongs to God and that God is bigger than the church. And so God is capable of redeeming and using structures inside, outside, and beyond the church to help the church be more faithfully what it's called to be. It's the difference between disciples and members. And maybe we expect too much from members and not enough from disciples. Amen. 
many of us are not disciples. In order to be disciples, mm-hmm. to, to, to make disciples, we have to first be one. And many of us are not. And I guess I would just leave us from my perspective is why can't we just be justice loving people? Mm-hmm. Why can't we start there as justice loving people? And that means that when we come across these systems of injustice, wherever they are, our job is to dismantle them or and definitely not to lean into them or to ignore them. Mm-hmm. So if we could just be justice loving people, I think I think our world would be such a better place. Amen. Honored to be together today, colleagues. Just absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you all Thank for your time. Erwin. Thank you, Sharon. And all the friends who joined us who are still on the call. This would have been a different experience if we had not had you. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Well, thank you all. We're going to close our call for today. Uh, thank you to Alice and thank you to everybody who's been on this call. And we look forward to our next table talk and pastors, leaders in our conference. Thank you for your leadership. Um, as Sharon shared, it takes a lifetime and you have committed your life to it. So thank you. And here's to the next generation committing their life to it as well. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you all. My friends. Brother Lopez, you're not going to pray us out? What? Sure, sure. <laughs> I don't know who said that, but I'll pray. Stephanie okay, Hand, come on, we got to pray. Let's, gotta do let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Come on now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this conversation and for this time to hear from our, our elders, from our leaders, from the people who have inspired us, who, mm. who it is because of their story that we heard the calling to, to stand up for justice. Mm. And so I pray that they would equip leaders in our conference and in other conferences to continue to share that message so that we can continue to live faithfully into the message of Jesus Christ who sets the captives free. And we pray, Lord, that the next generation is having a new conversation, that the next generation is having a conversation that has shown progress and that we would think strategically on how we can change systems to truly make a difference, Lord, inspire our minds, inspire our wisdom, inspire our hearts and help us all realize our role, whether we're called to the awareness level, the practice, the accountability, the systemic change, but also inspire us to not give up because this work is difficult. It does carry we do carry a heavy burden and so give us strength lord to continue to do this for the rest of our lives in jesus name we pray amen 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 amen, amen. amen. praise the lord thank you dr hand oh. <laughs> no this was great thank you thank you yeah yeah great. Be well, be with you. yeah peace